And a very good evening and welcome to another edition of the Shoreditch Radio podcast here on Shoreditch Radio in London. I'm Liam Davis and it's lovely to have your company on this Wednesday evening. Uh, two really good guests on the Shoreditch Radio podcast tonight. Um, later on in the programme I'll be joined, but we're going to be talking education. I'm going to be joined by uh, Nick Saw. Nick is the executive head teacher of Harris Academy uh, St John's Wood and Harris Academy Tottenham. Uh, so I look forward to speaking to him about some educational topics in the news later on in the programme. But my first guest on the Shoreditch Radio podcast, delighted to say, doing something a little bit different tonight, but it's always good to try different things when you introduce new guests um, onto the programme. And delighted to say, one of my heroes, as a, as a massive Chelsea fan, one of my real heroes, um, as he calls himself the accidental footballer. Uh, delighted to welcome him onto the onto the programme. Um, Pat Nevin. Pat, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure to be on with you. Lovely to have you. Um, so I suppose, Pat, a good place to start is your early, well, I suppose where it all started. Um, when you, I mean, you, you, I suppose maybe I'll start at the end before I start the beginning. The book, as I said just a minute ago, um, is called The Accidental Footballer, Pat Nevin, The Accidental Footballer. When you started your career very early on, obviously in Scotland, did you, was, it, was you always determined that you wanted to play football professionally? Was that something that was absolutely driving you when you were young? Quite exactly the reverse of that. I had no interest in it whatsoever. <laughs> um, my interest was uh, I was doing a degree when I stopped. I was in Celtic as a kid and an S-bomb and it looked a lot of people thought it would make it as a professional footballer um, but I didn't have any great interest in it I loved playing absolutely loved it as much as anyone and if you ever seen me play you would know that I loved playing <laughs> um, but the idea of going and making a living out of it it, it really didn't jump out to me as something to do uh, I had brothers and sisters who had uh, you know studied went to do degrees and I thought that was exactly what I would do and I did <laughs> I went and started my degree and it was only partially the first part of that that uh, I was playing with a boys club again for the love of playing not for any other reason ended up in a, a, a game a kind of bounce game against Clyde and uh, at the end of it their manager said we'd like to sign you up and I said no nah, I'm not really that bothered with <laughs> doing the degree and he said we're part time you can do both and we'll pay you 35 quid a week and I went yeah what do you say <laughs> <laughs> I can buy lots of albums as it was in the day um, so that was the idea you know just go and enjoy playing football as for Clyde at the time problem was things kept on going quite well quite quickly ended up getting the original player of the year I went with Scotland under 18s to the European Championships we won them and I got played in the tournament and I'm thinking this is weird <laughs> so Chelsea at the end of that season Chelsea I was only just turning 18 Chelsea asked about it and I said no because I didn't have any great interest in being a professional footballer <laughs> I said no to Chelsea for an entire year um, because I just wanted to play football for the love of it um, so yeah accidental football is completely right because I tried in fact here's the perfect line is I tried really hard not to be a professional footballer and failed very <laughs> <laughs> so, different from your normal route in football and that's why I would hope it's quite a different book because it's coming from a completely different angle my background is not like most of the footballers who were kind of one 
track minds, that's what we wanted to do. And for me, it was different. I just like doing it because I love doing it. Tell us about the move to Chelsea then, because I know it happened in 1983, and obviously, was it a really sort of brave move to leave Scotland? Um, I mean, there was obviously a lot of Scottish players playing in the first division as it was then, um, but obviously in, in, in them days, um, you know, nowadays it's probably much rarer. Billy Gilmore is probably a good example of that if we think about Chelsea. But I mean, just thinking about um, when you came down, it was obviously quite a, a big move. Tell us a little bit about how those early experiences of London, I mean, obviously London, such a big city, um, you know, it's sort of swinging around in the 80s. I mean, that must have been, and somebody like you loves music. I mean, the music scene in London. Um, you know, tell us about those early experiences when you first came down. Well, the odd thing was, um, it was purely logic that drove me to it because I had a year left in my degree and I wanted to play in the World Championships for Scotland uh, under 20s. And Chelsea had given me a two year contract and I thought, or offered me that. And I thought, well, if I take that, I can always go finish my degree in two years' time. So I was going down for a bit of fun. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I'll agree with you, the music was a draw, you know. To be honest, I loved London anyway, even at that age. I'd, I did the real in Europe and I'd gone via London. And I knew London quite well. And of course, from a Glasgow boy, if you're a city boy, you're a city boy. So I love cities, you know, that's me, yeah. I've always loved them. So it was a big thing as a kid to go down. But uh, going to a city, that's cool for me. And I kind of liked the idea of all the things that I could see. And of course, I wanted to live in London. Most of the rest of the players lived, you know, around Albans or Watford or whatever. And I went, no, I'm not now. I'm, I'm in the centre. <laughs> London and Sealand, because it's a and I would argue it's one of the best, if not the best side in the world. So uh, when I came down, the music scene was great. Um, I met some really interesting people. I'll tell you what was cool, uh, getting covered in the book. I came down the same week as Charlie Nicholas. So Charlie goes to Arsenal with this big blaze of glory, and champagne Charlie, and all the <laughs> fans talking about all this money. And I'm the punk the other side of the city, turning up for Chelsea, that nobody knows and no one's ever heard of. Um, <laughs> And it was, it was not expecting things to go well, but just like the previous couple of years in the career, within a year I was playing a year at Chelsea, when I don't think actually the manager expected me even getting to the team in the first year, yeah. because I was so young and we got promotion, we won the league. Um, so it was extraordinary that, you know, from two years previously, I'm a scruffy student, <laughs> and now I'm playing at Chelsea and I'm playing a year and I'm in the top division and I still don't feel like a footballer. I just want to live a normal life, and that's maybe the most my favourite parts of the writing the book. When I look back on it, was I determined to just stay normal. You know, I didn't do that mad lifestyle that you know a lot of players would have done. Would do that. I said, no, no, I'll, I'll go and play. I'll be utterly dedicated. I love training. I'll stay in for afternoon training, but I'll still go down to take gallery afterwards. I'll go down the set back afterwards to see a play. I'll go and see gigs. Um, because it was a great opportunity to see a different part of life. So, you know, that's why, in many ways, I mean, you've read many books by uh, insiders inside football, and that's great, isn't it? Mm. But I was an outsider yeah. inside, which is a different perspective again, because I'm seeing it like, I was going, I'm going to say, all of us, all of the rest of us, I'm saying, this is weird, man. This is weird. <laughs> <laughs> And they would always say things to me, like, at the time, some of the players would pick me weirdo. And I was saying, 
no, no, you don't build, I'm normal. <laughs> and, I, and of course, it, what it led to was interesting times because I would see things and do things differently. Um, I, I, just, I basically related them all and put that across to, to make people understand for a number of things. You don't have to just fit in, right? You, what you can actually do is be yourself. It doesn't matter what industry, you don't have to be in high-level professional football. But it doesn't matter where you are. Just go and be yourself. If you be yourself, I think you'll be more respected anyway. Um, so that's how it started. But I wonder, man, I decided to only do it for two years. It ended up lasting 19 years as a pro. <laughs> didn't quite get that one right. In the midst of all that, I was able to get through a very, very strange kind of life story in the midst of it all, but also trying to keep a normality, but also keep my eyes out for the weird things that were happening around me. And all my mates were all musicians. And so there are stories in the book about nice every Morrissey, some weird people that, you know, players wouldn't have been involved with. So all of that, you know, went to, when I looked back, a really odd, interesting and different way to look at football. Just thinking about your time at Chelsea, I mean, I suppose it's a, a personal interest for me, I suppose, of, of, of remembering you play. Um, I mean, I think back to some great matches. I mean, uh, I mean, it was one game, I think it was in the, the Milk Cup, um, which you'll remember well, the, the sort of games against Sheffield Wednesday and Chelsea ended up getting to the semi-final, losing to Sunderland, which was a shock at the time. But along that way, I remember there's a brilliant game. I think you can watch it on YouTube and you probably have. Um, of a game against Manchester City in the in the League Cup, and um, you take a penalty um, <laughs> that um, it's probably <laughs> not one of your finer moments, but I I, I, I think and, and I think Barry Barry Davis is commentating and he says, uh, um, I hope I'm not being unkind to to poor little Pat Nevin, a, a fantastic footballer. That's probably the worst penalty I've ever seen at this level of football. Um, I mean, there's been a few since um, since then. I can think of a few. I'm sure you probably can. But but it's those little memories of, of, of Chelsea in that era with Kerry Dixon and David Speedy and, um, you know, and, and some of the other characters that were there at the time. Um, I mean, you must have some terrific memories of, 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 that, of that spell, yeah. I have, and it's nice to relate them from my point of view, because it's not usually the one you get, because people see from, but the Barry Davis one, I mean, I am still, I, A, I am proud of that <laughs> I would argue it is the worst ever, and, you know, if anyone ever says it's the worst one, I get quite offended. You know, wait, wait a minute, I want to keep this the worst <laughs> The weird story at the end of that is, we were 4-1 up, I think I got mine in the match, it was about two minutes to go, and a rubbish penalty rolls into the keeper right I cannot stop laughing I think this is hilarious <laughs> the manager spots me laughing afterwards goes you know this great here and I said we're 4-1 up it's a cup game it's over it doesn't matter it's hilarious and he said no, that's you fighting 100 quid <laughs> for laughing <laughs> I, I hate like I ever paid it no chance but I always thought it was really good uh, to laugh at yourself and not take yourself too seriously so I always get people mention that. In fact, I'm the one who originally put it up online because I wanted to laugh at it. <laughs> um, I mean, what's hilarious is that if you want to go and see the kind of skills I had to, there's, a, there's some, some patent skills. If you take that in, you'll see some of the skills in my career, right? And it's really nice. It's really good stuff. And that's probably about 3,000 views. Put in patent 
Don't know half a million. <laughs> 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 I think that's hilarious. I think it's brilliant. I mean, I, one of my, I, I, even though the, the, there's some great memories of your time, Charles. In fact, even in that very game, I remember you set up a, a Dixon goal, I think, for his hat trick, and you beat two players out on the wing and cross it, I mean, brilliantly. Um, for Dixon, I think, to get his hat trick, but yeah, I mean, that's a that's a, a brilliant moment, and I suppose he's captured by one of the all time great commentators in Barry Davis, in that he sort of got you, gave you stick, but at the same time, he acknowledges within the the line, you know, uh, uh, that you are a great footballer, you know. So it was sort of it, it was one of those, wasn't it? It was exactly, and it was funny. And I do think footballers. Then I know sometimes take themselves a lot bit too seriously. You know, you, I was in it for fun. Uh, also, you can you can be both at the same time. You can be a winner. You can be desperate to be the best you can. But you can also have a bit of fun. With Absolutely. Yeah. I was always looking for the the light-hearted fun side, but also the creative side. I love the creativity, and that's my absolute joy of football. So you were talking about those games back then. There was one particular game, Sheffield Wednesday, when you mentioned that. It was called that day. The entire defence attack. You know, that that, that that turned into one of the best goals I've ever made. Yeah. But I was really, really happy because I enjoy that much more than I would enjoy scoring a goal. You know, I love the creativity. So there was lovely memories for that time, but there's darker memories as well, um, which you have to deal with when you're going through you know, life in that sort of world. But it was really interesting to look back because I never looked back. No. Never, because in football, you always look forward to the next game, the next game after that. If you look back, it's as if you're accepting defeat. So it took me, it took me about 30 years to, to decide how we look back in my career. <laughs> <laughs> and then I did and started writing about it. It was a joy because when I went down, and when I'm down there, my hero was John Peel. DJ. Yeah. Within a year or so, he was my, one of my best mates. I know it's crazy sometimes, isn't it? It's funny sometimes how football goes, isn't it? And 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 everything. And and you know, it, it, one door opens, another door opens. It's a little bit like that, isn't it? And and football is is like that. And I suppose maybe the move to Everton. I mean, I think you maybe didn't really want to leave Chelsea. You probably didn't even want to leave London. And 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 of course that door to Everton then opened and and. You know, Everton were probably at that moment a sort of much more well-known club than than, than Chelsea, and it was a lot higher stakes. And you know, you got to the FA Cup final in that time, and you were very competitive up at the top of the league. I mean, Everton were known as the big one of the big five at the time. Um, so it must have been really different. You know, all sort of those transitions must have been really difficult and different. Yeah, but I was good at what we people that I quite liked. The manager up there was a great manager. Um, the management at Chelsea had then gone in a direction that didn't suit my kind of play. Yeah. Very sort of long ball game, which wouldn't, wouldn't really suit me. So I was going to a club that was um, playing a, a kind of a brand of football would probably be more suited to me. Um, and it was lovely, it was lovely to move there, and I really enjoyed my time in Merseyside. And of course, well, typical of me, the music's up there is great as well. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a party animal at heart, you know. You're a party boy at heart, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
the interesting people to see, mm. trying to find out more adventures. I mean, going back slightly to Chelsea, one of the people that I met, which again is a weird story in the book, is, you know, I met Saddam Hussein. Now that's wild, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> game Chelsea played Iraq. And if you, you're aware of what's going on around you, you remember it all, you learn bits from it, and you can write about it in, in the end. But when I went up to Goodison and Everton, they were a very good team. And as you say, I, I scored the winning goal in the semi final, yeah. the, the FA Cup semi final, which was possibly the most important goal of my career. So, biggest moment, fantastic. I walk off the pitch only to discover Hillsborough had had yeah. another semi-final. Yeah. So the biggest high to the biggest low. And it's trying to understand those things and what happened afterwards and yeah. writing about what it was like to be in there. You know, so I'm having a laugh and I'm having a, 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 a giggle and I'm, I'm enjoying it. But in the midst of it all, life goes on and you have to see it. And, and the dark side of it was, you know, I went to a lot of funerals, a lot, a lot of those people that died. And it's, mm. It was a horrific time. Um, but you have to you have to get through it, you have to you know, learn from it, and hopefully football learns from it. And um, at that point, then I become involved in as chairman of the union, which is another match. <laughs> it's, 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 of course, a wee bit strange from there. Um, and as, as you go along the way, you know, the, a lot of people are, they gauge their career on, you know, medals won. I, I never did that. I gauged it by how much I was enjoying myself. And I suppose after about 150 games of my career, you know, how many games do you really remember? Do you remember the ones that were joyous? And uh, there was there was quite a few of them as well, uh, as well as Chelsea. Mm. And then after Chelsea, you ended up staying on Merseyside. You played at, at Tranmere Rovers. Um, I mean, that must have been an interesting experience too, because obviously you dropped down a little bit. Um, I suppose different standard, different style. Did it? Did you, did you find it suited? Su- uh, you mentioned about at Chelsea that it went to a long ball game, but obviously it's sort of more in the lower leagues tends to be more heavy horses than perhaps skillful players such as yourself. What What was it like dropping down a bit? Again, that's what I would have expected, and it was the opposite. Um, by the time I left to go try, I mean, remember what people wouldn't know now is we were in the playoffs to get to the Premier League every year. So we were, we were within an inch of getting to the Premier League every year. So we had a right good team, uh, lots of internationals in the team, and we were really pushing to get to the top. And we played some of the best football you could imagine. The team that I played for then was very like the team I had played for when I started out with Chelsea. Attack mainly two wingers, two strikers, just go all at attack all the time, and really skillful football. In fact, much more skillful than the team that I was playing at, at Everton, who were a much more structured side. So the reason why I went there, and this is the mad choice I had, I had the choice between Galatasaray huh. or Tranmere Rovers. That's <laughs> <laughs> the call that I had to make. Uh, a number of other clubs had come in, but I'd been on loan at uh, Tranmere for a couple of months because I wanted to get to the Scotland team again. Yeah. And I just, when I was there, I just thought, bleeding hell, these kids are brilliant. And they were, they were a brilliant team. And about eight of the team went and played in the Premier League. So we had a very good team. Problem is, they didn't have enough money to have a good squad, and that's what stopped us. But in amongst all that, I probably played the best football my career uh, at Tranmere. And we were some, when we played against Premier League teams, Aston Villa were a big team at the time. We absolutely muddled them all. <laughs> um, and they beat us 3 1 in the semi final. 
So we get as close as Chelsea ever got to a cup final. So it was a very good team, but they were also mad. Everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> mad, mad people. I love people that just do strange things all the time. And the manager was off his head. Tell me a story about the manager. He uh, said to his one, he'd attack me, and he said to his one day, right, man, before we go, we're going to leave two up for a corner. And we all went down. And he went, no, no, actually, we'll leave three up for a corner. We're all looking at each other going, I don't think that's a good idea. Actually, lads, sorry, we'll make that four. We'll leave four up pitch for a corner. And we're all going, this guy's lost his head. And he said, I've got to take that back. Sorry, lads. We'll leave five up for a corner. And I'm going, he's lost it. He's completely lost it. Anyway, we didn't leave five up for a corner, right? We, we brought them back. We were sensible. See, about seven eight years ago, I was at a game between Barcelona and Real Madrid. Pep Guardiola left five up for a corner. <laughs> <laughs> They were lovely people and I had a good time. And then you go down, I went down the division but with the, the thought of getting back up again. But I also wanted to enjoy my football. And it's the odd thing is, if you had all my international caps together, I played more for Trambian. I was totally understanding the fact that I was in a good team. And I was playing with some of the best players I've ever played with, and I had a really good time. And we came with a hair's breadth again to the Premier League. And wouldn't that have been good? You know, trying new rules. It would have been amazing, yeah. It is, yeah. It's a bit, it would have been a fairy story, I suppose, especially when you look, look where Tranmere are at um, now. Um, I mean, from there you went and finished your career in Scotland. But I mean, to be honest, your career. Um, I mean, you, since you, you, you retired from football, I mean, you've had so much variation in your career since you, you, you finished playing. I mean, you mentioned your degree earlier, um, and I, I know that's been a big, big thing as well. But I mean, also your, you know, your media work, I mean, you've been working as a summariser on, I mean, I would even argue lead some, one of the lead summarisers on, on Radio 5, on, on, on the Premier League um, coverage. Um, you know, and you've mentioned about your love of, of music and, and your, you know, DJing and, and everything. I mean, you've had a real... I mean, most some people of your era, when they packed up playing football, um, they either went into management or they completely disappeared. But you didn't go into management, but you've, you've still gone in a career that's sort of doing everything. It's, it's fantastic. I've really enjoyed it because... Uh... I became chief executive and player at club at the same time at Motherwell. Yeah. Which I don't, uh, that's the only, that's never happened before. <laughs> <It's not laughs> uh, but that was interesting to do that for four years. But the media work was interesting because I've always written, um, uh, so I was writing from various newspapers and then Five Live. I mean, I've been to all the World Cups and all the Euros, covering that for Five Live and various people. And I've lots of television jobs, not just in this country, in other countries as well. And to be fair, I never planned any of that. But I love, the bit I love most about it, I love watching the football. Hey, people are paying you to watch a game of football. Yeah. What's not to love, right? I'm not complaining here, right? But the other side of it is it got, it got an opportunity to travel. And I love travelling. So, working with Channel 5 TV for about 10 years, then working for Radio 5 Live, get to see everywhere in the world, find out more about the people, learn about different cultures, and have adventures, which is what I wanted to do. And they're paying me to do it. So that was different class. 
Absolutely. I mean, I mean, it must have been one of your. Um, I mean, to get to travel, like you say, traveling is such a wonderful thing. Um, you know, it's like a like a, a massive thing, and obviously with COVID and everything that's gone on in more recent times, it's obviously become much more much more difficult and much 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 harder, isn't it? And and I guess you know, at what stage did you decide you wanted to write the book? Where was it that you decided that you wanted to write the book? Because you did write a book as well many years ago, Pat, on psychology and all of that, didn't you? You sort of did write a book on psychology and and everything around that, didn't you? Yeah, well, I, I was interested in sports psychology and I wanted to do a book about it, but um, it was a kind of almost a holding book until I wrote the one I really wanted to write, start writing. Um, but I put it off and put it off for a long, long time, and then. Uh, just about two or three years ago, I thought, oh, forget about this, I wouldn't do it. Somebody had annoyed me. And I, like, I was so annoyed that I was just sat down at the computer. And then, by the time I stood up again, I'd written 10,000 words. And by three weeks later, I'd written 120,000 words. And I thought, I better take this to a publisher, see if it's any good. And uh, they liked it. Um, so that's what made me do it. But as soon as I started writing, I just loved the creative process of writing. So. That, but that was one thing. I, I wouldn't let anyone go to my work. I would, I would only ever write one. Yeah. Because um, I would hope to get my voice and the humour and all that across. <laughs> so that's what I, I wanted to do when I started doing it. And, you know, it's been a real shock because the success of it so far has, has amazed the publishers. Um, any Chelsea fan will be delighted to know that... Um, an old Dustin Venger off the top of the, <laughs> of the Amazon. Um, I'm, I'm happy with that, Pat. I have to say, I'm very happy with that. <laughs> and nothing against Arsene. Arsene's great, but uh, I think we've got a wee bit of a shock at how successful it's actually been. And I think part of the reason for it is you don't actually need to be in football to, to read this book uh, because it's got so many other things in it. Football is the kind of skeleton of it, uh, but there's so many other things that come off it. Mm. Some serious subjects, some less serious subjects, um, and it's, it really has gathered a, a brilliant momentum. And I've, I'm loving chatting about it, and you're asking me questions about it. The brilliant thing is, I'll be honest with you, I think you're my 71st interview. Wow. Right? And nobody's asking the same questions, which is amazing because. You know, if you have a book out, there should be one or two things that everyone goes to. Mm. It's not been like that. Mm. There's so many different areas that everyone zones in in a different bit. So I'm really, really pleased with that. So, like my football career, I'm not in it to go and make a whole bunch of money. That's not the, the idea was to give some pleasure and enjoyment yeah. to people. And the reaction to it and the reviews of it have said that people have really, really enjoyed it. <laughs> and and that, that gives me so much, so much happiness that. I was able to do that for people. Absolutely. It's not often, Pat, I, I always have, have the, the, the next guest line up when, when I sort of always split my interviews. But it's interesting, my next guest, he's actually sitting in the studio with me now, he's been brought in, and he just said to me, Nick Saw, he's in the studio with me now, he just said to me that you uh, are his absolute hero. <laughs> now, I think that's probably, that probably is... I think for a lot of people where they see you at because you you were that player that everybody in that era that little bit of skill that could do that little bit different maybe like the Hazards and the, and some of the players of today Messi of course who, who is maybe the most famous of it of all but I, I think it really resonates with people that era that you played in and 
and you brought something different to the game, particularly at Chelsea, particularly at, you brought something in that was 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 perhaps very different to what English league football, top league football, was like at that time. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that because um, I have to be brutally honest, the rest of the world was laughing at England because... It was a big long ball game thing that was going on in England at the time. And it was uh, uh, Charles Hughes and the FA had started it. But the rest of the world, we were, we were looking at other things. We were. Was, I was allowed when I was at Chelsea at the start to, to do that, to be creative that way mm. and be skillful. Um, it really made life a lot easier for me. But it wasn't an easy time. For that type of player, I mean, if I had to compare myself style-wise to any player, the closest modern-day player would be David Silva. Yeah. Now, I wasn't as good as him, but that's the style that I was trying to play. Now, you look at now, Silva, Xavi, Niesta, Hazard, Mata, there's no reason. Right? Yeah, yeah. Back then, there was so much interest in power plays and get it in the mix of stuff that it was a bit harder. And if you're a weak guy, you still... Away you would stand out in the wing. Whereas before I came to Chelsea, I'd never played in the wing. Mm. I'd never ever been on the wing. <laughs> so I'm like, what are you putting me there for? <laughs> but you have to learn it and you have to deal with it. But it was nice to be able to do something different. It was nice to be able to, I suppose, more than anything else, give out that happiness and that excitement. And if somebody went off a game and thought, oh, that made me happy, that, that gave me a lift, that's, that's made me. A happier person today. That, that's it. Success. That, and I presume Nick, it did. It did indeed. <laughs> um, Pat, one final question before I let you go. Um, you've obviously written the book and you've reflected in this interview on all the things you've achieved in your career, not just in football, but all the things you've achieved off the pitch. Are there things still? In the obviously in the years still to come, that you would still love to achieve. Um, well, first of all, surprise, surprise! Part two of this book's finished already. <laughs> um, and I know what part three is going to be. So I think the writing's going to carry on. Um, do you know what? Absolute honesty and reality. There is only one goal: be happy. Mm. You know, find ways to be happy. You know, and and the positive things in life don't. I don't want to spend my life being a victim or saying, oh, I wish I had this, I wish I had that, I'd like to have that job. It's not that. What you've got, make the very, very best of it. And, you know, you don't get everything that everybody else wants. And I suppose I'm lucky that, you know, I'm not that sort of person that's chasing after material material wealth or anything like that. I have mm. no interest in that. I never had. So it's easy for me to say that. But it's all about happiness. Somebody said a classic line, uh, one of the organisations I worked for is BBC World Service and then one of the girls I worked for she's a great American soccer player air soccer beer soccer but um, she said to me when I was explaining my, my attitude towards life and she goes yeah right enough Pat none of us are getting out of this alive it's a great line yeah you need to stand back a wee bit and see what's important in life and what's important in life is being happy and being happy is different for different people and for me it's just trying to do things you enjoy and 
Absolutely. Well, Pat, listen, all the very best of luck with the book. As you say, you've knocked Arsene Wenger off top spot. Um, I hope that you go on and win the Champions League with that book. I'm sure that you will. Um, but, uh, um, can, I one, can I see one last thing before we go? Uh, you can, Pat. Go for it. Yeah, I know it's a short pitch, so um, I'm down at the weekend. I'm coming for the Scotland-England game. I'm going to Scotland to you just now on the way down. I've stopped in a service station. Yeah. And... Uh, um, come down to Scotland England and the day after I'm doing a couple of book talks uh, at the Lexington in Angel yeah. so I think there's a couple of tickets left but I just love talking to people about it and getting people a chance so I, I know it's not show pitch and I do DJ in Goldstone quite a lot but uh, <laughs> Islington is as close as I can get to this one in Saturday there you go so if you want to get down Pat Nevin uh, he's down in Islington on is that where is that at Pat is that Wolves the Lexington the Lexington okay yeah okay so if you want to see Pat you heard it here first um, well you probably heard hearing it here the nearest to Saturday uh, Pat is down there make sure you get down there um, and see Pat and you can get a copy of the book get a signed copy of the book and all that thing Pat listen it's been lovely speaking to you um, all the be- very best with everything um, it's been wonderful reflecting on some wonderful memories of uh, your time not just in the game but in life and uh, uh, it's been lovely speaking Pat and all the best good luck yeah, and all the best and uh, this is the only time ever I would say all the best to all you English people <laughs> Pat, the way things are, we might need it. Who knows? Come Friday night, we never know. We might need it. Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Pat, lovely speaking. All the best. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, lovely speaking to you. Um, and that was uh, Pat Nevin uh, joining us here on the uh, Shoreditch Radio podcast. Always a pleasure to speak to Pat. Um, and stay tuned. Nick Saw is up next here on the Shoreditch Radio podcast. And. We're going to talk education now with 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 Nick Saw. So Nick, of course, um, to reintroduce him, has been a regular guest on this program over the last couple of years. Uh, Nick is the executive head of Harris Academy St John's Wood, Harris Academy Tottenham in North London. Uh, Nick, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Um, how's things been with you? Everything been okay? I think so. Yes, definitely. I you know everyone experiences COVID and lockdown in different ways. I was straight in, in half term just about to get my bags ready to, to go to school and got pinged by the NHS app so oh. I had to isolate for the, the first week after half term but you know running the school uh, schools remotely so um, it's still out there yes it is it. yeah I mean that's really interesting actually it almost gives me a starting point because I mean how is that for you because I, as somebody who I imagine who's quite a hands on manager to be sitting at home uh, on a laptop um, and on a phone, I don't imagine that's you. It's not me, and it was, it was hugely frustrating. <laughs> I mean, you get loads done in a sense because you're not having any of the casual relational discussions that you have in corridors or any of that kind of thing. But no, I mean, hugely frustrating. And I mean, a hint, I suppose, for people who were uh, what people who were shielding felt because hmm. it wasn't that I was just working from home. I wasn't allowed to leave the home in a sense. I couldn't go to the shops. Couldn't go around the corner. Had to get my waitrose uh, uh, delivery. Home delivery. Yeah. <laughs> so no, it was a hint of a glimpse of um, what isolation's about, really. So that was very frustrating. Mm, I'm sure it probably was. Um, so we are in the final half term of the academic year. Um, do you see? I mean, I suppose you, with your schools, are starting to plan ahead to, for September. Um, what do you think in regards to? how September 
might look in terms of restrictions, bubbles, planning. I mean, I dare say for you, I mean, luckily you're obviously very experienced, but I dare say planning this at the moment must be an absolute nightmare because I'm sure you still don't really know what the guidance is going to be yet for September. And really and truthfully, that guidance should have already really been out so that schools can plan ahead, particularly I'm thinking around timetabling and things like that. And Because I know obviously in your school you mentioned, I think, way back when we were right in the middle of it, um, that you have done, uh, you know, you've had teachers working with just one year group on yeah. bubbles and yeah. things like that. Now, obviously, you want to try and reopen that to everybody next year, um, even from just a professional development perspective yeah. for, for, for teachers. So, how is it at the moment in terms of that planning? Where, where are you at? I think when we're, you know, if we'd had this conversation last year about how September was coming around, it would have been a bit like blackjack, a bit of a gamble. To, mm. I think we're all pretty secure that September will be different. Um, so we are all planning for a structural normality, uh, timetable-wise. So, you know, that concept of teachers only teaching in year 11 or only teaching in year 7, um, that's gone, I think. Although, you know, we, we are still thinking about the gains that we've seen in uh, behaviour, the gains that we've seen in organisation, uh, where year groups have been their own little mini-schools almost, where you've got a bit of team spirit in that year group and they have been, they've enjoyed their entire academic year just being with themselves. I mean, I think before we come to September, we're talking about the now, you know, we've all had plans prior to Easter for when schools and life and society properly reopens, um, and the first thing that's been hit is is something related to September, which is the, the induction day for the new year sevens. Mm. So, you know, every family uh, who has a year six child is really eager to see their big school uh, and have their move up day. Um, and it's really helpful, you know, schools generally have a move up day in the, the June-July, they have them generally have in the June-July an evening where they welcome the parents and then, you know, you have a day or two in September where they're on their own. But those days, those sort of induction days before the summer have had to be cancelled, so they're all going online again, mm. um, which is, I think, for parents and children... Very frustrating, isn't it? Yeah. 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 But you just can't do it in reality, you know, whatever the rules are, you know, having essentially 210 children who've probably come from 35 different primary schools, you know, you might be, they may be safe coming to you, but, um, you know, sending those children back to their primaries is probably not the best thing. It's a real mm. sort of cocktail mixer of, of COVID, uh, if there's a sound bite for you. <laughs> <laughs> a cocktail mix of COVID. Cocktail mix of COVID, yeah. I mean, that is a, there's, a, there's a real one. And then we've got summer school is the other big thing. During the summer holiday. Yeah, so the government obviously... If, Listeners may or may not know of are funding summer schools and the money for that. So, you know, one of our schools gets about £60,000. Mm. So you run that for all of your year sixes, 200 odd of them. But there's probably enough left over to support year 10 to 11 and maybe year 12 to 13. Uh, and we've generally planned that across the schools in the first week of the summer holidays. And that's going to be cutting it tight with restrictions <laughs> coming back um, and, and uh, making that work. So, um, but we're we're planning on with good, you know, this morning we had a lot of health and safety meetings, reviewing the risk assessments, reviewing the different uh, plans we've got for September. And I think um, we are going to go back to a normal timetable with various little, little side learning points. We are going to have the summer schools, um, but just watch the space, you know. I mean, schools have got used to um, looking at risk assessments day by day now. I mean, do you think, I mean, if you're ploughing ahead, I guess, with normal time, do you think that... Um the bubble system will probably be gone 
in September. Yeah, yeah, you fully expect it to be to be out. Yeah, I think. I mean, it, it will be very sad if we're not. I mean, it'll be a sad state of affairs in England if we're not. Yeah. Out I mean, I suppose the argument being that if, um, you know, if July the 19th, everything opens, then I guess it would seem bizarre. I mean, I guess with schools, a lot of young people haven't been vaccinated. I suppose that is one argument. But then again, if you're allowing people to do whatever they want, come July the 19th, when we think that's probably likely what is going to happen, then I guess there really shouldn't be any restrictions around what happens in schools, I guess. No, I think vaccination has not just stopped or prevented um, hospitalizations and deaths. Um, you know, the Delta variant that people are worried about, I mean, neither of us are clinicians, but the, the various research at the moment talks about the symptoms now being a lot more like hay fever almost, with yeah. headaches and sniffles. And I think, you know, there will come a time when we will, I think Professor Whitty said this, we will have to just live with it with lower consequences. It's a bit like living with flu, isn't it? We're just going to have to manage it best way we can I think that's probably the I mean schools have certainly learnt a lot they've learnt a lot about how to risk assess um, and you know if suddenly there is a new variant in 18 months time schools will know exactly what to do if they've got to close down and close their year groups and go to online learning um, we're much more prepared now if there's suddenly a sort of inf- infection and, and very, a lot of cases in one school um, you know Public Health England and, and the local authority will work with schools, those connections, that's a real boon and a real benefit of of COVID is that local authorities and academies are tighter uh, than before. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Um, Do you think that, I mean, there is obviously a concern, as you said a minute ago, neither of us are collisions, but the the Indian variant, the Delta variant, um, that's still very prevalent, particularly in London and, and, and around the England, um, I mean, we are still seeing COVID coming. I mean, you mentioned you about self-isolating. There are still cases in schools. I suppose the danger is, though, if in September, when we move to autumn and the weather does shift a bit, of course, um, I guess the danger, though, if the bubble system is abandoned, uh, I, you correct me if I'm wrong, you might know the guidance to this better than me, but at the moment, the sort of lateral flow tests are not binding. So at the moment when you get a case, I believe that you still have to send home students. Whereas I think the original plan was if, if they tested every day on the lateral flow test negative, they could still come into school. Now, I would think that in September that that is going to need to have to happen because there is a likelihood in the autumn that you will get cases of it. And if I'm thinking about older ones who are far more susceptible to it than, say, year sevens, I mean, that's going to cause a disruption to learning, isn't it? And, and, and unless something's put in place, such as the lateral flow tests become binding almost, then we're going to see key exam groups such as year 11, year 13, isolating again and missing crucial time. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are on that. I mean, again, like I said, neither of us are clinicians, but I guess I don't see how a 10-day isolation again in the autumn will allow for some of the exams and things to return, which I think a lot of teachers are now very... I mean, I'm reading a lobby on about a year ago, maybe two years ago, that GCSEs should be absolutely burned alive. It's ironic now that on Twitter, if you read it, that people want them back, simply because this summer has been crazy with the amount of marking that teachers have had to do. I mean, what's, what's your thoughts on that? I mean, there's a lot of questions there, Liam, I think. I mean, and... <laughs> 
depends what you mean by lateral flow being binding. I mean, I, um, I don't. Th I mean, the problem with that idea of doing lateral flow tests every day was that you end up doing nothing but lateral flow tests. Mm -hmm. You know, in Westminster, uh, where there was fears of the um, Delta variant, uh, we were instructed by Public Health England to test every year group in the week leading up to half term. Um, and all head teachers were sort of uh, quite up in arms in that because there were, you know, tags and the whole range of things that we're, we're doing that made it impossible because testing a year group takes a day, mm. you've got five year groups, you've got five days. So, you know, it messes up the whole scenario. So I think we will, I would not be surprised if we're still testing twice a week. Um, but there has to be a hope, I think, out there that, you know, like one of those end of a post-apocalyptic movie you, you come out of the cave in September and the sunlight is there the, the meteor is gone the asteroid has hit the earth and, and life improves so I think I mean that's got to be the hope I mean people call me Mr Optimism sometimes but I, I think I'm sure the lateral flow tests will be around but the buy-in for them in parents and you know to be fair even with staff I think it's is less stringent now than it was you know when you've got say 60-70-80% of your staff body being vaccinated, um, there's less impetus for people to test, isn't there? Mm, absolutely. I mean, I suppose you say there is maybe a greater emphasis upon parents to, you know, be involved very much with testing and very much involved with sort of ensuring that their 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 children get tested before sending them into school. I just wonder if that happens and we get tests, that I wonder will students still have to go home and self-isolate I just I just wonder is that sustainable if we are going to bring back well, I'll tell you something, formal examination well I think formal exams will definitely be there I mean I, I will eat my hat and we'll, I can come back you're going to hold you to this next yeah, May you will eat my hat but exams will take place they have to um, and I think you know what we're learning we're learning more doctors clinicians are learning more and more about uh, Covid and, and more recently in conversations with the DfE in the past, as you say, there was the um, isolate for 10 days, get your test, and even if the test said no, you stayed isolated for those yeah, 10 days. Yeah. But there's been a little bit more subtle and nuanced feedback now, which is that if the fever is gone, if the temperature is gone, then people can sort of return to uh, circulation. Mm. So, you know, those fever lasts only a day or two. Um, I think so. I think the ten days will reduce because it started being fourteen, didn't it, and then went to ten. And I wouldn't be surprised if, since September, October, the guidance was a bit more. Because I mean, even with you, I mean, I, I wouldn't ask you on air about vaccination because that's your own personal business. But I mean, is it? There is even an argument that, you, such as yourself, you always had to isolate for ten days. Um, you know, if those lateral flow tests were binding as such. I mean, you could test every day and still come in, but at the moment, the guidance is, regardless of whether you've had the vaccine, regardless of anything, you have to stay at home for 10 days. Now, surely going forward, that's something that, that's got to be looked at. because It's, it's certainly what we'd appreciate. I think. Yes, I think. Certainly, you know, easing up that would be appreciated. appreciated. Absolutely. Um, in terms of exams, we just were talking about it there. Um, and I know you're an avid Twitter user, as am I, um, and you keep a, across a lot of stuff that goes on on there. Um, I've seen teachers on there who said that this summer, um, and in the run-up to it, they've never worked as hard in terms of marking, moderation, grades, uh, everything. Um, all the evidence folders that are proud to be put together. Um, 
I mean, I think that's why you made the remark a moment ago where you said you'll eat your hat if exams don't come back because, I mean, that sort of workload this summer and the, the rigour... I mean, it's probably been very rigorous, which is a good thing, but at the same time, the amount of workload that's gone into that in individual schools... And I know your schools have a sixth form, so it's not just year 11 mm-hmm. GCSE, it's also A-level yep. year 13. I mean, what's been what's things been like in the schools that you work in where these processes have been happening? Well, I mean, particularly, I mean, you know, your frontline infantry, your, your teachers, the burden has fallen a lot on them because ultimately, you know, this is not a centre assessed grade. The burden, you know, has fallen on the teacher. Teacher assessed grade, yeah. yeah. And the burden of responsibility, the burden of guilt, whatever you want to call it, goes with them. And, you know, I, I suppose had we in September been told every child in every subject will need a folder of stuff <laughs> That will we would have ordered our Manila folders earlier. <laughs> we would have ordered our treasury tags earlier. I think that's the the thing. You know, teachers are very flexible and very um, amenable, really, to get because they, you know, they love the ch- the job and they love the children they work with and they want to do the best for them. But, but there's been a great grinding of gears to get this to work. You know, uh, there was not you know even till you know before March really there wasn't any sense of you know having to provide oodles of evidence and five pieces of evidence and exams and this other. so it's not just the amount of work it's the suddenness suddenness of it mm. and the lateness of the advice and guidance really on it so it's a big burden on teachers it's been a big burden particularly on subject leaders yeah um who you know want to hold the line want to hold the standard you know this i worked hard to get an a level i worked hard to get a degree you are going, going to work hard um, and it's hard emotionally, I think, as well, because you're, you know, you know what you're doing. You're trying to hold the standard, but you know everybody hears the rumours about some school down the road not doing it so hard, or some school down the road giving them the answers. And yeah, I mean, it's that it's that degree of 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 inconsistency and variation that means that standardisation process doesn't exist this summer, does it? No, and I mean, you know, without exams, the the, the concept of standardisation is, is very complicated. Mm. To say the least, oh, yeah. I, I don't want to say useless, but <laughs> pointless. But there's a lot of trust going into this. You know, Gavin Williamson keeps saying, you know, ultimately let's trust the teacher. I mean, that becomes complicated because we do all trust the teacher, but not all the teachers have the same experience, or the same expertise, or the same sense of what something's worth. You know, we all know when you go to an examiner's meeting, you sit down and have twelve examiners mark the same essay. Very few of you have exactly the same mark out of thirty or whatever mm. it happens to be, and that comes through lots of discussion and then agreement and then sorting out the bell curves and make it work. So um, I think for the lay person trying to get their head around what standardisation is and what and what um, a grading process is and why it can't be across different postcodes the same without exams is probably something society is learning. Mm, mm. And of course it's led to schools asking for their money back from the exam boards because... I mean, barring the materials, of course, exam boards this summer are pretty redundant because schools and teachers have done all the work, really. Um, I don't know if they're going to get that money back, but <laughs> probably worth an ask, I would think. Oh, it's definitely worth an ask. And, you know, when you're, you're thinking that a school like St John's Wood will be spending £130,000 on mm. exams, um, you know, entries, A-levels, BTECs, the whole, everything, um, you know, that would come in handy if you're, you know, not mm. doing it. Um, certainly in Scotland and certainly in some schools, individual schools, staff are given a you know five hundred pound bonus if they've been 
one of the year 11 or sixth form but it's not a universal thing and of course schools haven't budgeted for that mm. um, schools has that been a real challenge this year Nick sorry to interrupt you there has that been a real challenge budgeting this year uh, budgeting challenging at all times uh, I think because you're trying to get the best bang for your buck um, and trying to squeeze out everything you can um, I mean, you know, for some, and it, it's different for different schools because, you know, if you're a school that's heavily reliant sometimes over the years on, on cover, you know, you've lost three months so you, where you didn't need cover. Mm-hmm. Um, so some schools have, have benefited in some ways financially and some have, have done much worse. I mean, the burden of cleaning, the burden of uh, cleansing schools and providing PPE, um, schools haven't had money for that since January. So all of the, you know, two or three extra cleaners you've got running around teachers fumigating rooms and all that kind of stuff so yeah I mean there's been significant financial cost because mm. of cleaning and PPE that hasn't particularly been covered since January yeah quite a challenge but as I say I suppose at the best of times it's not easy um, so in terms of we, we've talked a lot about Covid but I mean I mentioned earlier those sort of days where days are lost um, there was a big effort a few weeks ago so Kevin Collins who of course, as the government's man, the government's are on, on catch-up. Um, he's resigned. Um, how has it looked, um, your end, in terms of catch-up, in terms of trying to roll out programmes? I mean, I dare say you've tried to get the ball rolling with extracurricular again and get that sort of thing moving. But, I mean, has it been in terms of thinking about planning and intervention and and catch up I mean do you think I mean the government seemed to have not really know have a particularly clear strategy about it and I think that's probably why the resignation happened that happened but I mean I mean it's obviously crucial to sort of try and get this generation I mean I'm particularly thinking like year seven and yeah. year groups like that they're desperately going to need that year eight that catch up period and some of the primary school kids as well have maybe missed out on basics such as yeah. reading, writing, grammar. Well, Kevin Collins has had, you know, really interesting experiences as a leader. You know, he was CEO of, of Tower Hamlets um, schools in, you know, sort of 2010, 2011. Uh, and we all know, you know, how high profile Tower Hamlets was in terms of disadvantage and, mm. and turning that around. You know, all of, when I went to Tower Hamlets as head there at Bishop Chaloner, by the time I got there, almost every school in Tower Hamlets was outstanding and had, you know, excellent results. So, um, you know, he's got he's earned his spurs. You know, he's been in the inner city. He's he knows what he's talking about. And then his time, obviously, the Education Endowment Foundation. So I think his recommendations were really salient, mm. were really uh, helpful, um, and he steered the recommendations in the right way. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's disappointing that the funding is, you know five times less or three times less than he asked for. Uh, although I've you know, been alive 48 years, I don't think a government have ever given people what they asked for, <laughs> um, ever, or certainly not more than. So, I mean, Boris has said, has he not, that, um, you know, this is the amount now, but they'll, and Rishi Sunak said, this is what you're going to get now, but then there'll be a big uh, spending review in, in September, October. Um, I mean, one has to, you know, argue the case, uh, push back, but also accept that, you know, the monies will come at some point and the, and the Parliament will argue for them. Um, and schools will work their darndest to, to make it work. I mean, as you say, the year sixes and to sevens, you know, the current year seven list missed, you know, almost an entire year of their 
their lives, the year six is coming to year seven now, similarly. So um, there will, we've looked at things like long, extending the school day, um, but there's a lot of research that, you know, just doing that doesn't do a lot of mm. good. Um, it will be about quality first teaching, as it always is, and making sure that CPD is, is right, and making sure that, you know, the direct instruction that is given in the classroom the most effective way of teaching is is delivered, and the best training is delivered. Mm. Uh, you know, we know what works. Um, we know things like tutoring works, yes, but that's a little bit frittering around the edges. What happens in the classrooms in those twenty five hours a week is vital. Is vital, and that, and that's the most important thing. And, and Kevin Collins's work has a lot of advice to say about that. Mm. So, um, you know, my agenda and my plea to all schools is to is to look at you know, getting the CPD right so that the, those 25 hours is effective. Hmm. To finish off on a positive note, um, in your schools, is there is there optimism in terms of you've got staff are able to do briefings again and, and, and sort of maybe a end of term celebration? And, 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 and I guess it must also be a challenge as well because obviously student celebrations at the end of you know, year 11, the end of year 13. Are those things that have been able to happen this summer or is it, again, because of logistics and everything, it's proved a, a difficult one? Well, I was, I was very thoughtful about this question because I might be called Mr Optimism, but I'm also the, the man who cancelled Christmas and, the, and, <laughs> and I'm anti-prom. Um, I'm not, I don't really like the sort of Americanisation of um, English culture and the idea of a prom I find odious generally mm. and... Um, I certainly don't like it in year 11. Um, I've always tried to institute a kind of year 11 academic scholarly celebration where yeah. people get the prize for English literature, the prize for chemistry, and then maybe we dress up and maybe have a dinner together, but we dine like diplomats. We yeah. do not have a prom where there's naffness going on and people <laughs> arriving in limos. It's, I hate it. Um, and, you know, or hiring a boat and going on the Thames. I think... COVID, one of the blessings of COVID is that we can it's get knocked out on the head. head. Yeah, yeah. Can... <laughs> I love it. Brilliant. Um, Nick, thanks very much. It's always lovely to talk to you uh, on the programme. Uh, as ever, Nick Saw, the executive head at Harris St Johnswood and Harris Tottenham. Uh, that's it for the uh, Shoreditch Radio podcast. Um, back next, where both programmes are back next week, Tuesday. Uh, Monk's guest Tuesday, John Isles, uh, the actor John Isles will, will join us on Tuesday. Um, so I'm back then, but as ever, I always wish you, and it's sad, I think the weather is about to change uh, dramatically. Um, so I hope you've enjoyed some of what's left of the sunshine before it disappears probably till uh, next June, knowing uh, <laughs> the British weather. But it's lovely, thank you very much to, to Nick and to Pat Nevin, and I'll be back with you next week.